Hello, and welcome to This Thing Called Life, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about acts of giving, kindness, compassion, and humanity. Your host, Andy Johnson, will introduce you to powerful stories about organ, eye, and tissue donation from individuals, families, and healthcare teams whose experiences will inspire you and remind you that while life is hard, unpredictable, and imperfect, it's also beautiful. We are so happy you're here. Now, let's join the show. Hi, everyone. This is Andy Johnson, host of This Thing Called Life, and I hope you are doing well. We are just sailing through the month of May. It is beautiful outside, and I hope wherever you are, there's some sunshine in your life today. I also want to remind you that May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm just glad to see so many more resources that are out there uh, via the internet and just things that you see on TV and that we're really demystifying this topic of mental health and really just starting to talk about it because I think that's going to help so many people, especially so many people who are still uh, recovering from, you know, this, the COVID crisis. And, you know, I think that had a big impact on all of our mental health to some extent. So just keep, keep your, yourself strong by just being in touch with your mind and your body and your spirit and just reach out to the people that are close to you and then all the resources that are available. So there's cerebral.com, there's nami.org, just a lot of online therapy that people can take advantage of now, which I think is fantastic. It's just, we're about making things more accessible and I think that's wonderful. I have a great guest with me today um, who I actually just met a couple of weeks ago while I was at the Center for Closing the Health Gaps Health Expo. And, you know, I've been talking a lot and I've had guests on who've talked about the importance of prevention and understanding your family history as it relates to kidney and heart disease. And she's just going to give us some more insight and really share her story and, and her journey and testimony about this topic. And I just want to share a truth with you also, truth about donation. There is no age limit or medical conditions that prevent you from registering to be a donor or having the potential to be a donor. Did you know that if you have been cancer-free for five years and have not received treatment during that five years, that you could be a donor? Did you also know that if you have hepatitis, you could still be a donor? People who are into their 80s and 90s have been donors and have given the healing gifts of tissue and cornea. Did you know that if you have active cancer, you can be a cornea donor? All I'm saying is I encourage you to renew and not remove yourself from the registry. I'll say it again. Please don't, please renew and not remove yourself from the registry. Because when you say yes, when you renew your license and you say yes to donation, this is your opportunity to bless others when you have passed away. You can bless them as a donor. Please visit lifepassingon.org for more information and to register today. Our podcast, as always, is dedicated to diving into the truths about organized tissue donation because there is so much misinformation about this topic. So we're going to continue to dial in and we're going to use the space and time together to create a better pathway to understanding and healing so that 
we understand collectively what donation is and what it isn't. And once we have this understanding, we can do better for ourselves and our community. So with that, I want to welcome Ms. Chastity Williams to the show. Hello, Chastity. How are you doing? Hello, Andrea. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, I got just a little kind of snippet of your story when we met a few weeks ago, and I just, I wanted to know more and wanted, just really wanted you to share, you know, your journey with donation and just your life in general uh, with our listeners. So with that, I'm going to give you the floor. All righty. Good afternoon. Good morning, everyone. Which one ever it is. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been dealing with blood pressure issues since I was 20 years old. Um, I just happened to go to the doctor with my grandmother and she asked her physician to take my blood pressure because I would walk around every day with a headache. And he took my blood pressure and he's like, oh, your blood pressure is sky high. And I, at the time, I think the numbers were like 130 over 100s. And he's like, how long has it been like this? And I'm like, I don't know because I don't go to the doctor. And he's like, well, you need to get in and see a doctor. And I'm like, okay, I will. Well, another year had passed and I still hadn't seen a doctor. And I was basically self-medicating with Excedrin migraine for the headaches. It never really got rid of the headaches, but it made them manageable. And so the following year, again, I happened to be taking her back to the same doctor and he took my blood pressure again. At this time, it was a little bit higher than it was the last time. And he said that by law, he couldn't let me walk out of the office with my blood pressure that high. So he ended up calling the ambulance and they ended up taking me to the hospital. Wow. And so let me, let me let me stop you real quick and ask this question. You went with your grandmother the first time and they said your blood pressure is high and yeah. you waited a year because you said, I'm going to manage it with some Excedrin, manage the headaches that that is a symptom of high blood pressure. What, what made you wait that year? Because I was still fairly young. I was like at the time between 20 and 21. So I. <laughs> For me, I was always told how blood pressure affected older people, uh, people who didn't eat right, and people who were overweight. So I was none of those. So I just thought, you know, after I had got to Googling things, and sometimes Google is very helpful, but a lot of times it just, you know, band-aids things for us and we don't pay attention. So mm. it had told me about something called white coat syndrome. So mm. I just assumed that that's what I had because any other time I felt good and I just had a headache all the time, but I was young. I happened to become a mom at an early age. I was almost 17 when I had my son. I had, so I was a young mom. I was still in high school. I was working. So I just contribute that headache to just the you know, lack of sleep. Like if right. I got four hours in, I was, I was, I was doing great. So I was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not overweight. I weigh like a, a buck 20. And, you know, if anything, I wasn't eating enough food throughout the day. So I was like, mm -hmm. it can't be that. And I'm, in, I'm 21, 2021. So I'm like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So mm -hmm. I didn't seek any treatment for that. And I just assumed I had the white coat syndrome. When I got in there, I got nervous around him. And so my blood that, pressure raised because You of that. felt like that's what raised. I was, I was getting ready to say, so what is white coat syndrome? But as you ex explained, I said, it might be this feeling of anxiety that someone yes. gets visiting yes. the doctor. Huh. That's exactly what the definition term. says. Yeah. 
So I just assumed it was that. Well, my grandmother had been going to this doctor for quite some time. So he knew me very well because I that was another thing I was doing. Uh, me and my grandmother. So my mother and father passed away when I was three years old and I'm an only child. So my grandmother raised me. And at the time when she got me, she was pretty old and had already raised 11 kids. So, you know. Wow, 11 kids. 11 kids. Yeah. Wow. So, you know. Me and her were more like friends, like she was getting up in age, yeah. you know, I already had a baby, so I was already very responsible. So I became like her caregiver, so to speak, at 16, mm -hmm. taking oh, her to her doctor's, yeah, taking her to her doctor's appointments, you know, making sure her medicines was together. And my grandmother was still with it and everything, but like I was just, we were like best friends at that point. So, you know, he would, the next time I came and the blood pressure was high, he's like, my nickname is Chaz. So he was like, Chaz. You got, did you go see the doctor? And I was like, oh, I forgot. He's like, for a whole year, you forgot? And I'm like, right. And I'm like, yeah. And then my grandmother goes and tells on me and goes, she's been sitting out in the waiting room dodging you because she knew she hadn't went to the doctor. So he's like, I can't let you go with your blood pressure this high. We're going to have to call somebody. So I'm like, well, you got to do what you got to do. So he called and they took me over to University Hospital. And got over there and they were like, oh, my God, they like hooked me up to the IV and I began getting medicine through the IVs. And it took a while for it to come down, even with the IV medicine. And they were like, it's never taken this long. We've given you a lot of drugs. You should have been mm. come down. And so basically that was my life for about five years. Just doing that. On top of that, I developed like an allergy that they couldn't figure out where it came from. And again, they said it could be stress induced, like you have hives if you get too stressed, mm -hmm. because like it wasn't one thing that was doing it. I could eat a bag of potato chips and break out in hives. I could go to the hairdresser and she sprayed my hair with something. I'd break out in hives. I could go to a restaurant one time, break out in hives and just be rebellious and go again and not break out in hives. So then I contributed my blood pressure problems to that. Like now this is what's causing it. It wasn't a it so, wasn't until, uh -huh. so you so so during that five years you were taking medication then to control the blood pressure not not regularly like um okay. they would get it down in the emergency room enough to either discharge me or admit me for a day or two and then i would come home on the medicines and i would try to take them but again i was like i have all these other things going on i don't think that they know what they're talking about i don't i don't have high blood pressure i feel mm. fine Mm -hmm. So I would stop taking them and everything okay. and just keep like basically for five years. That's just what I did. I wasn't consistent enough, you know, taking my medicines. And then I think it was one time I went to the emergency room and they ran some labs and they said, oh, your kidneys look like they're starting to suffer. And I was like, huh? I'm like, I'm, you know, to me, kidney problems mean you can't go to the bathroom at 23. That's mm -hmm. 24. That's what I thought. Yeah, so, that's that I, mindset at that age. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to the bathroom all the time, just fine. And nothing's wrong with my kidneys, but I'll go over here to see what he has to say or whatever, just to make sure. And I went and saw him and he's like, oh, you're in stage two kidney disease. And I'm like, stage two. And I'm telling him I feel fine. And he's like, well, just because you feel fine don't mean you're fine. He's like, if you don't start taking care of yourself, you're going to end up on dialysis and needing a transplant. And I'm like, oh, you know, that too went over my head because, again, I'm young. Everybody I think I know who's had a transplant or on dialysis, they're old. Yeah. I think I followed up with the kidney doctor a couple of times, 
but not not a lot. But he was a very good doctor and very interested in me. And the reason I tell my story is because I don't want people to be naive like mm-hmm. I was. This mm-hmm. this doctor was so good to me that one time my blood pressure had gotten like 160 over 125 and I ended up being admitted because they couldn't get it down. And mm-hmm. it's like one o'clock in the morning and I feel like someone is staring at me and I look up and it's my doctor. He wow. has he has gotten a notice that I'm in the hospital and he has gotten up out of his bed and come to see me. And he's wow. like, I, I told you, you're going to end up on dialysis. You know, you don't come to your appointments and, you know, you, you, you're you taking this for granted. And he's just going on and on and I'm listening. But all I could think about is you almost gave me a heart attack sitting over there in that chair. I'm in the <laughs> hospital. What else you want me to do? So, I shouldn't be laughing, but I have laughed at myself because of it. So I get home and tell my grandmother what happened or whatever. She's laughing like you were laughing. (laughs) And so, you know, that that should have been an indicator to me to how sick I was becoming. Mm -hmm. Nope. What did I do? Switch doctors. I'm really? Like, yeah, I'm like, he all up in my business. I'm at the hospital, so I obviously know when I have a problem. I don't need him scaring me in the middle of the night. My grandma just shook her head like, it ain't many doctors that would go that extra mile, and you go switch. And I'm like, yep. And so I switched. And the next doctor I got could care less about me. Oh. Never followed up on me, could care less if I came to my appointments or anything. And then I was at work one day, and I fell out at work. And I, at the time I worked at a hospital. And so they like rushed me into the ER or whatever. And, and, you know, people around the hospital had known for years that I struggled with my blood pressure. So they like, she's you know, it's probably her blood pressure or something like that. You know, she might be having a stroke. Well, it turns out I had a TIA. Oh, but okay. at the time when I found that I had a TIA, I also found out that I was pregnant. Oh my goodness. So I was like, oh, now I'm having a baby. And mm-hmm. so... That's when I started to take my health seriously because they were like, not only are you caring for you, but you're caring for your child. Like if you don't care enough about yourself, care about your baby that you're caring. So I was like, okay, you know, that makes sense to me because I've always been my whole life, someone who's cared for someone. Like I took care of my son at 16. I was taking care of my grandmother my whole life. I'm the person that people come to for reason or to like, you know, talk them out of a bad space. So that was something for me to do. Like, I, I guess I never value my life enough to care you about were it. You too but busy I, being everyone else's savior and superwoman. I, I guess so. I guess that's so. something we're very guilty of, you know, as women, especially black women. I feel like we just, yeah, we do that. And I didn't even realize I was doing it until I got older. Like it was mm-hmm. just such a part of my life that like, it literally wasn't until I got my transplant that I realized that that was what I had done my whole life. So I knew I had this baby in me and I had to be well for for my baby. So I started attending all my doctor's appointments, all my OB appointments. And I was literally like, you know, I still felt good every single day. But like every time I went to an appointment, I ended up being hospitalized. Either the fluid was shrinking and the baby had no fluid to swim in or I was having heart arrhythmias really bad and I would get admitted. And then one day I went in, it was like uh, maybe the end of July, the beginning of August, because I was in on my grandmother's birthday, which is the 28th of August. And the pattern would be I would go for a stress test and a fluid check on Friday. I would end up being admitted. 
and I would leave sometime Monday evening and go home and then go a whole week and the following week do it all over again. So when Monday came this particular time, I didn't get discharged and I was like confused, like what's going on? Right. And then Wednesday got here and I was still there. And then a Friday got there and I was still there. And I asked the doctor, I said, well, I've been here a week and I've never been here a week before. Do you know why I haven't gone home yet? And he's like, oh, no one talked to you. I'm like, no. He's like, oh, you're not leaving till you have that baby. And at the time I wasn't doing till the end of January. And I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean? I'm not leaving until I have the baby. He's like, your blood pressure is so hard to control, even in the hospital, that we can't have you go home because we're not, we just can't manage it from home like we can here. And so I was like, but I'm not doing until January. And, and I so started, what so, month was this? This is August. Wow. Yeah. No. I just cried and cried. Oh. So I'm like, I don't want to be in here this long. And my grandma's like, calm down, calm down. And I worked myself up into a panic and I had a hypertensive crisis. My blood pressure got up to 180 over 139. And so they like pumped me with all this medicine. And I felt like I slept for like three days at that point. So when I kind of came to and everything, I just realized that this was my new home mm-hmm. until the end of January at this point. So, and the, the part that was so confusing to them is that I never got pre, I never got preeclamped or yeah. clamped. Like they couldn't understand why my blood pressure was so high. Yet mm-hmm. the one thing that I should have gotten with it, I never got. It just, my blood pressure just never went down. Hmm. So in November, they said, you're not going to make it to January. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's still very little. And they're like, well, you're not going to make it to January. So he was born on November the 25th. Wow. And he weighed two pounds and 14 ounces. And he's my miracle son today. He's 16 years old. Oh. He's doing fine. He yeah. had nothing wrong with him. He walked at eight months. He talked at 10 months. He is just, he's just my little sweetie pal. He's my little loving child. (laughs) Yeah. So it was at that point that I decided like, you got to start making these appointments, even though you feel good, it's something going on with you. And you have like a body of steel that like nothing, like you literally don't even look sick to people, feel sick or anything, but obviously something's not right inside of there. So I started going to the doctor regularly and they just couldn't figure out like, why was I walking around every day with blood pressures as high as they was? So Mm -hmm. to make like a super long story short, I used to be on at least anywhere between eight and 10 blood pressure pills twice a day. Every Mm -hmm. time I would go to the hospital, they would be like, We've never seen somebody on so many pills who still have hypertensive episodes from time to time. And so mm-hmm. I ended up on dialysis, which I hated. And I did the at-home dialysis. And it wasn't that bad, but like it controlled a whole bunch of my life, meaning yeah. like I had to be home by eight o'clock every day in order to hook up to the machine by nine to mm-hmm. get my adequate dialysis to get off and be able to take my son to school mm-hmm. and go to work and all these other things. So I was like, and then I live in a fairly big house. My dialysis cords only allowed me to go to just the middle of my living room. So my bedroom was on the first floor. I could only go to the middle of the living room. I couldn't get to the kitchen. 
right. couldn't get to the front door or anything. So I was just like miserable because I'm someone who doesn't like to depend on people, but I really needed people at that. Like my, my son, my husband, like I really needed them to step up and they never had done that before for me. Like I was, they were so used to me taking care of them that, right. you know, when I needed them, they just didn't really know what to do. Like they were so spoiled. Like they just didn't know I needed them. Like I would be calling my son saying I needed something to drink for my medicines. He'd be upstairs on that game, wouldn't wow. hear me. And I would be down here for like an hour out before he would decide to come and check on me. It was just oh. miserable. So I And you know, strike you strike me as someone you 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 like to move and go if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I don't know yeah. you that well. Yeah. <laughs> I I I like to be free. Like I want to do what I want to do when yes. I want to do it. Yeah. yeah. So, and that, that yeah. dialysis, it limits you. You, you know, sure even humbled me. Home, you know, dialysis. Mm-hmm. It definitely humbled me and, and made me look at life so much different. Like that's when I just sat down and realized, like, you have been running at full speed for so mm-hmm. long. Like, mm-hmm. and now you you've been sat down by whoever has sat you down. And now you have to look and evaluate your life and the people in it. So I was on dialysis for a year and by this time, my grandmother has passed away, so I'm dealing with that as well. Oh, and, I'm and sorry, I, I know that had to been tough. Oh, that you know, I tell people now. Before I used to be like, you know, could say, oh, you know, they're in a better place, and you know, our goal now is to be with them. You know, live your life in a manner that you think you would be able to see them again, and blah blah blah. But then when it happened to me, it was like, when am I going to feel better? When is this pain going to go away? And it never did. I still have it to this day. Like I even have it more now that I've gone through dialysis and this transplant because I'm like, I needed her like mm-hmm. and have her. So all okay. those wounds that I thought were beginning to close have now opened back up again. And I just realized how much she meant to me and it hurts a lot. So mm-hmm. now my home has become the home where we gather for holidays now. Oh, and to back up a little, my grandmother passed away and it was literally like she was the lifeline to the family. She lost four kids, my uncle and her sister, right after she passed away. Oh, my God. It was like they just couldn't live without Without her. Yeah. So the rest of the family would come over here for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. That, That was our routine. And how I get to my transplant. So. I've asked everybody that I know to, you know, to go be tested. But did not, you really? Like, yeah, like I asked them in like a roundabout way, like I, um, because that was that was Perry's problem with me, my pride. Like a lot of people didn't even know I had kidney problems. Yep. So when I started asking people, like, are you aware of organ donation? Like, have you ever, you know, thought about being an organ donor? Is it on your driver's license? And you know, they would be like, uh. Not really. And I don't want to be an organ donor because they always let the black people die and steal our organs for white people. And I would just be rolling my ass like, oh, my God, nobody's stealing your organs for that. And then I would casually be like, well, if you die, maybe you'll give me your organs. And they would be like, what you going to do with mine? I'll be like, I need a kidney. I need a kidney. Yeah. They're like, you don't need a kidney. I'm like, I do. Swear you need a kidney. I'm like, I swear I need a kidney. And they would be like, what I need to do to go get tested? And I would be like, here, call this lady. That's right. pretty much how I asked just about everybody that I was comfortable asking to go do it. And the reason I, I was 
you know, surprised or I, I, I think it's great. And I'm glad Perry, you know, nudged you about, you know, getting over that pride thing is because I, I have talked to so many people who, A, they don't want to disclose to people what's going on with them. And then B, they, they don't, and it's, it's, it's very much prevalent in the black community. They don't want to make that ask that, you know, I need, you know, I need a kidney, would you consider being tested? And the numbers are staggering when you look at the statistics of like the number of white people who get tested to be living don't living kidney donors versus black people it is it is like day and night. And I just that's why I'm, I love having you on because we have to talk about these things. You know, we, we can't be scared of, you know, this boogie monster that doesn't exist. You know, no one is going right. to take you for your organs. And I just, exactly. that is just a bunch of hooey. And exactly. And I love how just kind of upfront you were with, with, you know, your circle of people and just saying, come on, you know, so please continue. So for me, the reason I was so upfront, because like, again, I live my life for others. So like, as I looked around, I thought if something happens to me, my children have no one because while I've known my husband since kindergarten, he has, he's really just gotten his life together in mm -hmm. the last 12 years, you know, mm -hmm. so he was just running the streets. So mm -hmm. we don't have any children together. Mm -hmm. So, and my kids are so far apart. They're almost 11 years apart. So I had my son at 16, but I was like, my grandmother maybe be a mother. So it wasn't fun for me. So I wasn't popping them out like Tic Tacs. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, she's like, where you go, baby go. You want the baby so bad. So I'm like, what I won't be doing is pushing a double stroller anywhere. So they're almost 11 years apart. So my oldest son is 27 and my, my baby is 16. So they're very far apart. But I just thought like, who's going to be here for them? Like, right. who's going to help them? I don't have any siblings. They don't have any cousins. Like my oldest son, dad, doesn't have any more children. And my youngest son, Dad, has a he, uh, he was married and he has a daughter. She's six. So they recently connected and are good good friends. But I'm like, who's gonna be here for my babies? Like, right. This is not fair to them. So I'm like, you have to swallow your pride and you have to ask. And the best way for me to ask, I'm a joker. I love to laugh. So that's kind of how you know I I put it off. I didn't look sickly or anything like that. And like for people who were scared to donate, I would be like, okay, but Say you say you don't want to get nobody your kidney right now. That's fine. But what about if something happened to you and you you pass away? Yeah. Are you going to take them with you? Or right. would you like to know that five people, six people, yes. you know, you, you made somebody be able to see you gave somebody a kidney. You gave yes. somebody a heart. Like, think about it like that, that you will still be living on through these other people. Mm -hmm. So why not donate after you're gone? And a lot of people said, you know, I'm cool with that. And so right. they were okay with that. And I was okay with that because, you know, you can only do what you can do. And again, right. you have to believe everything happens for a reason. So that person wasn't meant to be my donor if yes. they didn't they didn't go get tested. So I asked everybody that I felt comfortable asking and none of them was a match. And all of them had something wrong with them that kept them from being match for it. Like it's a program called the pair program, yes. the parent. So none of them could qualify for that because of the things that was wrong with them. Like a, three of them had diabetes run real bad in their family. And yes. so the doctor was saying that, you know, even though you don't have diabetes, we don't know if you're going to get it. You yeah. have over 10 family members with it. So we would hate to take your kidneys 
Right. And you need a kidney. So those three had got knocked out for that. Three other ones had got, no, four other ones had got knocked out because they took two blood pressure pills. Two of them was on low, low dose blood pressure pills, but it didn't matter. The fact that they were on two knocked them out the box. Mm -hmm. And then I had another one, my oldest son, who I'm still fussing at today about it because he reminds me so much of me that it makes me cry sometimes <laughs> at night. Uh, it does because I'm like, I just see me all over in him again. And I just think to myself, oh my God, that's what people was going through when they were talking to me. So he goes to get tested and they tell him that his liver lab work came back at nor abnormal and he needs to follow up. Mm. He, has yet, he has yet to do it. Mm. He is, no, he's practicing out his Buddhism and his, the healthcare is just a, a money scheme to get money out of people. And he's trying to save up enough money to go overseas where healthcare is better. And, you know, he just got all these outlandish ideas. So I'm like working with him every day because I'm like, oh my goodness, I just see myself in you. You're 27, you think. He, you know, he thinks you know orange, everything. Yeah, orange juice is the cure to everything for him. He'll call me, Mom, did you drink your orange juice this morning? You know, orange juice is the cure to everything for him. So um, he drinks his orange juice and he walks five miles and jogs three every day. So and he, he's active and he lifts weights. And to him, he's fine. I'm like, son, I felt the same way at your age, but you're not. If they're saying it's an issue, go find out what the issue is because you only have one liver. And if it goes out, you do have to wait for somebody to die or right. you have to get a piece of someone else's yes. depending on how bad it is. But, you right. know, it just goes over his head. And I'm like, you know, I can't fuss at him too much because I was him and he yeah. has to make the decision on his own. But like, all I can do is be a living testimony to you. that. Well, you yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, look, he could look at you and see you know, where that, that stubborn, stubbornness led you, right? Like, Absolutely. you know, and let that be the lesson for him of what not to do. And I, I can appreciate, you know, doing everything you can to be preventative. But if the doctor is saying you need a follow-up, then you need a follow-up. It doesn't, you Period. know, and that's Period. it. So they can mm -hmm. keep an eye on it, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So hopefully, hopefully that'll kick in and you know, it'll, it'll register. Fingers crossed. That's all. Fingers crossed. Yes. yes now. So I, I'm almost on dialysis a year and it's Christmas and my uncle and my, my, my uncle, my two aunts, my son, both my sons are here and my husband and everyone knows me. I'm a wonder woman fanatic. Like I was still watching it on me TV when she was spinning around and everything. Like I love wonder woman. So the, <laughs> New Wonder Woman had came out and we were going to go see it as a family. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of lollygagging around. And I said, come on, y'all know I got to hook up to this dang machine. Y'all going to make me late. And my uncle goes, what machine? And I'm like, uh, my dialysis machine. And he's like, you on dialysis? I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> I just said it on Thanksgiving. And he's like, well, I didn't hear you. And I said, oh, my goodness. Now, fat, back, let's back a little bit. My aunt who was here, she's like my mom to me now that my grandmother is gone. 
And she's always been around taking care of me. I would say to her, like, how come Uncle Eric doesn't want to get tested for me? And she would be like, well, you know how Eric is. You should just ask him. And I would be like, well, I don't want to ask him because I don't want him to feel pressured to do something for me. If it doesn't, if it's not what he wants to do, he knows I'm on dialysis. I mean, I'm only saying it every other day. And she's like, well, you know how Eric is. So when he said this, this day, I was thinking to myself, like, Gee whiz, he he really didn't realize I was on dialysis. And so I've been on dialysis all the time. He never even knew. So he's like, you want me to go get tested? I'm like, that would be great. Yes, yes, I want you to do oh, that. Oh, man. And so he I goes. I have a feeling, Uncle Eric. Yeah. our he hero of our story. It, it's such a crazy story. He goes and gets tested. They come back to me and says, he's not a match. But he's going to do the pair program. So I'm like, okay, cool. So we're getting worked up for the pair program. And I just happened to ask my dialysis people, how come y'all not drawing that PRA on me every month like I used to get done at Christ? And she's like, oh, I thought you were still going to Christ. I'm like, no, I remember I told you they were going to do it up here for now. And she's like, oh, yeah, we haven't been drawing it. So then I got to thinking, well, how did they say my uncle wasn't a match if they never even had the blood? So they draw the blood for me. They send it down. And literally four days come and I get a call. Oh, we have a match for you. I'm like, we do. She's like, you're going to be surprised. I'm like, I bet I won't. And she's like, I'm like, who is it? She's like, it's your uncle. So uncle all this time, Eric. Uncle Eric was my savior. Yes. What a story. And let me say this. What <laughs> I love about you, Wonder Woman Chaz, is... You like a lot of people don't want to ask questions, but like you've been, it, it seems like you're so in like you ask, you're asking your nurses questions. Why isn't this happening? Why? And because you did that, that whole situation turned right back around and Uncle Eric was your match. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so many of us are scared to do that. We're just like, let the doctors do what they do. But we got, we have to be our own advocate and fight for ourselves and fight for our life. I tell people all the time, I'm like, nobody knows your body like you know your body. If something doesn't feel right to you, it's, you know, it's your job to ask questions. They're human. They make mistakes all the time. They're not perfect. So, you know, you have to ask, you have to tell them. And if it sounds like they're not telling you something right, you have to push. My, my kidney um, nurse, who we see after the transplant nurse, she's like, you're my best patient. She's like, I don't have to worry about you. She's like, I, you, you are on it. You keep me on it. Because mm -hmm. my whole life, I've been an information junkie. Like, lay it on me. I don't care how bad it is. I want to know it. I want to process it. And then I want to make a decision. Like, I want to know what's going on. Yes. I, I love WebMD. I love my chart. Like, I'm in there Googling everything I don't know. Like, I want to know I'm that person that goes to the doctor with the notebook because if I'm sitting at home thinking about something, I don't want to forget to ask it. I'll write it down and I'll go. And, and my, my doctor is Dr. Kramer at the Kidney Hypertension Center. And he just cracks up at me because he's like, I don't know who's doing the visit, me or you, because I got like my notebook and I'm writing what he says. And then I say something back to him, you know, because I'm like, this is my body. Like, this yes. is I'm in charge of it at the end of the day. And so, I need to know things. And if I'm not comfortable, I ain't leaving. Like, you ain't just going to tell me a bunch of stuff, hand me a bunch of prescriptions, and then tell me to go up out here. I, if I'm, I'm not comfortable, I'm not getting up until I'm comfortable. And I used to, when I worked at another hospital, I had to tell my patients that don't leave the room 
if you still have questions. Make sure they answer them before you leave the room. And so I'll, I just tend to practice what I preach all the time. So, yeah. So when did you receive your kidney transplant? July 8th of last year, 2021. Wow. And it was supposed to be on July the 6th, which I was super nervous about because that's my mom's birthday. So when they said it to me, I thought, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Like, is she going to be watching over me? Or I even was like, am I going to die? Like, I was just worried about that day. And they called me the next day and they go, would you mind switching days with this patient? It's, it's really important. They need this day. And I'm like, sure, I, I don't mind. And they was like, we're going to do you on July the 8th. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So we're at the clinic. Everybody, they have like one big clinic and everybody's getting worked up for their transplants. And I run into the people who I've switched days with. Really? And now they're, now they're my best friends. We check wow. on each other all the time and we talk to each other. And it's just the best thing ever. Like we just happened to be sitting there and, and, they, and I said, his wife said, when is your surgery? And I said, oh, it's July the 8th. And she said, oh, ours is July the 6th. She said, we used to be on July the 8th. I said, I think you took my day. And she's like, did we? And I got to explain it to her. She's like, we did take your day. And she got up and hugged me and was oh. like, thank you so much for, for doing that for us. And now we just, we're the best of friends now. Wow. Wow. So I think your story is just, I, I'm just, I keep thinking, I keep saying to myself, wow, it's just an amazing, amazing story. But Talk, talk about what has, what's life been like for you post-transplant? Oh my goodness. Like living in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. That's the best way I can describe <laughs> it at this point. You know, you sit in your living room watching TV one day and the next thing you know, watering water in your upstairs bedroom. That's the best way I can explain it. So wow. post-transplant first week was absolutely great. I was like, oh. I can do this standing on my head. You know, I'm walking around. I don't need any medicine. I'm fine. And, you know, I just want to get out of this hospital. And so they're like, all right, we're going to let you go. Well, you have to go to the doctor three days a week when you get discharged. And on a Friday, I went the Friday. I got discharged on a Tuesday. They let me skip the Wednesday. I went on that Friday mm -hmm. and I walked in just fine. They're like, look at you walking. I'm like, yeah. And I sit down and then I hear them whispering and I'm like, what's wrong? And they come in, they're like, you're going into rejection. I'm like, I can't be. I feel great. And they're like, I know. So they're like, we got to take you down, give you a biopsy. We're going to admit you because if you are going into rejection, we want you to be here so we can start the treatment. So I'm like, OK, I end up I'm admitted. They say, yep, you're definitely in failure. Mm. We have to do all these things to you. What all these things were, I would have never been prepared for that. They enter a line through my neck bedside and the gentleman made it seem like, oh, this is just a simple procedure. We put this line in and then we take you downstairs to start the treatment. And I'm like, OK, but as he's coming in, he got this tray with him and it's like all this surgical stuff on. I'm like, that tray doesn't look like something simple. And he's like, oh, trust me, it is. I'm like, OK. And I'm laughing. He's laughing. I'm like, you better not hurt me. He's like, I'm not going to hurt you. And he goes, lay on your side. And he drapes my face with this blue like paper with a peephole. It's like a clear peephole. So now I'm nervous because I'm like, 
nothing is simple about this. You're doing all of this. And then they call my aunt over because she's with me. And they like, you have to put this gown on and all this stuff. Like she's going into the operating room. So now I'm like super nervous. Like, what are we doing here? And my heart is beginning to raise. My mm-hmm. blood pressure is getting up. And they're like, calm down. You have to calm down. And I'm like, y'all scaring me. What is going on? So he's like, you know, we're going to put this line in and you're going to feel a little pressure. No, that was not pressure. I don't know what that was, but it, I've never cried. That brought me to tears. I'm like, oh, no. I feel it on my heart. Are y'all hurting my heart? They're like, calm down, calm down. So I get it in and I can't even move my neck. I'm like stuck leaning to the right side. I'm crying. My, I look over, my aunt's crying. I'm crying now because she's crying. I don't want her to cry. So I'm wiping my face and I'm going, I'm fine. I'm fine. And my aunt's like, you're not fine. I'm like, I am. I'm fine. It's okay now. Because I don't want her to cry. But I'm hurting so bad. And so they take me down to do the treatment. And she leaves because we never thought we would be there that day that long. We got to the hospital at 6.50 in the morning. By this time, it's six o'clock at night. I've been up all day. I haven't eaten. She's been up all day, basically snacking. And now she has to get back home to make sure my son is okay because my husband owns a trucking company and he's gone. So I'm like, oh my goodness. So she leaves. I go down to get the treatment. The nurse is like, are you all right? I'm like, no, I cannot move my neck. And I hurt so bad. So she let the people upstairs know. They call the doctor and the doctor on call is like, she can't have any medicine. And the nurse is like, thank God for this nurse. I wrote her up because most nurses would have just listened to what the doctor said and been like, it's nothing I can do. And, you know, I'm like, I hurt so bad. I still have pain medicine at home from getting my dialysis stuff put in that I never touch. If he's not going to give me any here, I'm going home and I will be comfortable and I'll come back tomorrow, but I'm not going to stay here with him on call. She's like, chastity don't leave she's like give me give me 20 minutes 20 minutes and i'm like you got 20 minutes before i'm leaving up out of here and she's like okay and she's like just calm down she's like let me get you another warming blanket she's like i want you to be comfortable she's like prop my neck up for me and i'm like thank you so much for all of this or whatever so she goes out she comes back in and she's like i think we're gonna get you some medicine i'm like you think or you know she's like i'm pretty sure she's like i had to call the big dogs and he's very upset and I'm like, oh, who is the big dog? And she says his name. And I said, oh, that's my buddy. And she said, I know he's very upset because he said, you're one of his best patients. You never give anybody problems and you don't, you never take pain pills. So if you're asking for them, you must really be hurting. So I'm like, oh, thank God. She's like, listen, he, he, he listened and she advocated for you. That's why I yeah, love our nurses. I love them when they do it, when they do their job. Yes, yes love them because she didn't have to go to them extremes for me like she just didn't so oh she gets my pain medicine I go right to sleep I wake up the next morning and I'm fine she's like do you want another dose of pain meds I'm like no I don't want another she's like are you sure I'm like I just needed to I had been through a lot my neck was hurting I just needed to go to sleep I'm not a pain junkie and I want pain pills all the time Mm -hmm. so she's like well the doctor wrote you for Percocet every four to six hours if you need it I'm like I don't need it I'm good so next thing in the morning all the doctors are in my room my transplant doctor my regular kidney doctor the head of the kidney foundation a a kidney uh, specialist and he's there like what happened last night and I'm telling them and they're like Oh, we going to get him together. And they're like, because people who get this procedure done in the surgical centers, they go home with a 20 day supply of pain meds. Oh, 
So the fact that he refused to give you some for the night is unacceptable. So I was like, do whatever y'all need to do to him. You know, I just don't want to see him anymore. Right. I just didn't like his bedside manner. So right. I go get these treatments. I have to get them three times a week. They call phoresis treatments. Yes. So they, I got those. And then I had to get chemo to kill the rest of the dead cells that the phoresis didn't mm-hmm. kill during my, trans- my treatment. Well, that chemo, you know, I said to the woman, she would have to suit up like she was going into outer space to give me this this drug. And I would be looking at her like, gee, my God, why, well, she got to do all that to give it to me. What is it doing to me? And so I asked her one day, I said, why do you have to put on two gloves, two coats, the face mask, the hat to come in here and give me that? And she's like, oh, it's just protocol because it's been a couple of nurses in the past who had fertility issues from administering these drugs to people. And I said, but what does it do to me then if you got to do all that? She's like, honey, it basically kills everything in your body. That's why people look the way they do on, on chemo. And I was right. like, geez. And it just gave me a whole nother appreciation for people who have cancer. Because like I said, mm-hmm. I was only getting, you know, Minimal. I mean, yeah, like, and it like took me down. I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. My stomach was just tore up. If I wasn't praying to the porcelain God, I was sitting on it. It was just horrible. Oh, atrocity. Yes, yes. Oh, horrible. Oh I'm like, you know, I lost 70 pounds in two weeks, which was, I wasn't complaining about that, but you know, I'm like, I can hardly walk to the bathroom. I was just so weak all the time. I became dehydrated. I got admitted like four or five times for dehydration. I got admitted a couple times for vitamin deficiency. My D was low. My B was low. My C was low. My A, it was just all of them had just depleted. I was mm-hmm. in the hospital for that. Then I ran into a situation where I didn't have any white blood cells because of it. And so I was extra susceptible to, you know, Mm -hmm. infection. So I was quarantined in the house for that. Then I had to get a bone marrow biopsy because they were checking to see if I had, what do they think I have? Leukemia? Yeah, leukemia. Okay. So they were checking me for that. And I was like, God, please. Because all I could think about is what the little bit of chemo did to me. What is this going to do to me? I can't like my, you know, my husband's willing me to the bathroom to go to the bathroom. I've had to break down and get a walker. It was just horrible. And then I got neuropathy. And when I tell you I'm, yeah. I feel for anybody who has to deal with neuropathy, that has taken over my life. I, it's not, I've gotten the feeling back in my hands, thank God. But my feet is a different problem. Like they hurt so bad. And I tried for so long to not have any pain meds. Like I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not taking them. I'm not taking them. And I went a month and a half and I finally just broke down in tears. Like how much longer am I going to feel like this? Oh, it can resolve in six to 18 months. I said, there is no way I can go on six to 18 months this like way. this. I just yeah. cannot. So I finally had to get on pain meds and I usually just tough it out during the day and try not to walk a lot, but I have to take it at night because just the covers on my feet bother me. It's crazy. So I dealt with that for a while. So in January is when I started to see progress. I got the feeling back in my hands. I was able to keep food down again. My my numbers, my lab numbers and stuff started to improve. And yeah, so that's where I'm at now. Just my hands are back. Just the tips of them are still numb. I'm okay with that. 
and I'm just waiting for my feet to wake up again, and then I will be made whole again. So, so you the slow and, it's slow and steady. It's, it's slow, slow and steady. steady. My grandma says slow and steady wins the race every time. Slow and steady wins the race. And, you know, I think it's important that people hear all of that because, as I have said before, you know, transplant is, it's not this, you know, this night and day change. Like there, there can be issues along the way. There can be complications. There can be rejection, but, but it's, it is a way for people to live on and be a healthier version of themselves. Absolutely. Um, but I, I appreciate you just being so, you know, so brutally honest about what this has been like for you, because that that is the reality for a lot of people. It is. And, and I think that's the scary part, the unknown. Like mm -hmm. for me, I was one of the people that thought you get a transplant, you're better. And that didn't happen for me. So, like, I think a lot of people think like that, too. And for me, I thought, here's my uncle giving me a transplant. How guilty am I going to feel if he gets sick because of it? Like what do you what do you say to that somebody's trying to save your life and then they get sick in the process that weighed very heavy on my heart so every day that my uncle was doing amazing it just makes it much easier for me because I'm like I just didn't want that I don't know if I could have take have could have taken that if he had gotten sick so I think people worried about that while you want to live you are asking someone else to put their life in jeopardy for your life and that's a that's a hard burden to carry how, at that point. how is he doing Uncle Eric's doing amazing. It's just, I mean, we all have such a close relationship to the point like, you know, I feel like every other week he asking for his kidney back. So, <laughs> when, when the Bengals lost the Super Bowl, it's it, was like my kidney back. Yeah, it was because he didn't have two kidneys. That's that's what it was. I'm like, oh, my God, Eric. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, geez, like he's like, if the, if the Bengals lose, I want my kidney back. But he must need that kidney back. Right. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and they lost. And he's like, I knew it because I need both my kidneys. I'm like, you can already get put out. <laughs> you can already get put out. Yeah, he's you know, back running marathons and golfing. and Oh, that's having, great. Yeah, having a great time. It's, it's great. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wonderful news. So what was what would be your advice to that patient who is kind of followed that same pathway of maybe ignoring some some signs and some doctor's orders to be seen or maybe on dialysis and the next step is is transplant but they're but they're hesitating what would be your advice to them um i guess i would be like you can ignore it but it's not going away uh you can bury it it will come back up as I was told as a young child, what's done in the dark will come to light. So you can act like it doesn't exist all day, but it will be there and it will remind you daily that they're there and that they need to be addressed. So, I mean, it's better to get it out the way in the beginning versus the end. Take care of it early, get on with your life, live your life. Don't have this shadow following you everywhere you go because it will follow you everywhere you go. Take care of it early so that you can be a, a better version and a healthier version of yourself for you, for your family, for your friends. Nobody wants to see you go before you before your time. Oh, my goodness. What well, that is just a perfect ending to our conversation. Um, Chastity, I so appreciate you joining us today, you being so raw and open. I admire your strength. 
because you are a badass. I, I can I can see it. I can feel it. And you're a fighter. And we just we appreciate you. We really do. And I appreciate you for having me. I'm so glad that I was introduced to you. I hope we have a long friendship. Anything that you need from me that I can do for you in this cause, I am here and I'm just a phone call away. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, trust me, I will, you'll be hearing from me. So <laughs> don't worry about that. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so as we close today's show, I want to remind our listeners that 105,999 people are waiting for life-saving organ transplants. 89,938 need kidney transplants right now. Your decision to be a donor, you taking the step to register to be a donor can mean life for a person who is dying. These are men, women, children, there are neighbors, there are people who live and work in our communities, and they're also complete strangers who just need help. Please visit lifepassiton.org to get informed, to be empowered, and learn the truth about donation. Please visit nkf.org to learn more about kidney health and just prevention of kidney disease and just the signs to look for uh, for kidney failure or chronic kidney disease. And I want to remind you, if you like what you heard today or learned something new today, please take a moment to like, leave a review and subscribe to this thing called life wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank my guest again, Chastity Williams. And I just want to remind everyone to please be kind to yourself and to others. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Life Center. Are you interested in saving someone's life by becoming a living donor? You have the potential to help save and enhance the lives of others, those who suffer from chronic illness or the effects of traumatic events. Statistics have shown that a new name is added to the national waiting list every 10 minutes. You have the opportunity to help others and save lives. You have the power to donate life. By offering a kidney or a portion of the liver, living donors offer their loved one or friend an alternative to waiting on the national transplant waiting list for an organ from a deceased donor. Today, the number of living donors is more than 7,300 per year and one in four of these donors is not biologically related to the recipient. Go to Life Pass It On for more information. Thanks to Life Center for their continued support. Thank you for listening to This Thing Called Life. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcast to make sure you get updates on all new episodes. And we would truly appreciate it if you would share, like, or give us a review to help us grow. 